when you watch the news or read the news, sometimes you'll see a warning that says, uh, discretion advised. Uh, some content may be disturbing uh, to some readers or to some viewers. Uh, that warning is usually given because what you are about to read, the pictures you're about to see, maybe the videos you're about to watch, often will depict um, human suffering or, or trauma. And so we're warned um, that, that these images might be disturbing. What you read, the accounts might be disturbing. And so be warned. The words of Jesus from the cross um, should probably come with that warning. Not so much because of the physical pain and the anguish of what Jesus was enduring with crucifixion, although words fall short of adequately describing just how anguish-inducing, uh, how, how difficult, how, how painful, how agonizing that would be. But probably more so for the message that's communicated from Jesus in those seven statements from the cross that we're calling his famous last words. The seven statements of Jesus from the cross give us a window. They give us insight to see the character and the nature of Jesus. And as such, they give us the ability to see and have, have wisdom to understand some of the essential truths of God's kingdom and the reality is, as we look at the messages from Jesus from the cross, those messages, if we're honest, they disturb us. Uh, they, they, they bother us. And perhaps one of the most disturbing things that Jesus says from the cross, we'll, we'll examine this morning. We launched this series, uh, Famous Last Words, last week. And the very first words we looked at were Jesus' words in Luke chapter 23, uh, Father, Forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And we heard Jesus' prayer, not just for those present, not just for those who had inflicted the pain upon him, but seeing because of the full scope of what transpires, that prayer, we were included in that. We're going to continue in Luke chapter 23 today because following those words from Jesus on the cross, he shares more words from the cross. So if you have your Bibles, find Luke chapter 23. As you find that, I just want to pray and ask God to help us as we read something that might challenge us and challenge our thinking. God, I just pray that your timeless words, God, your words that are true, Father, words that are true in a day and age where so many question if there is truth, you uh, give us a foundation. Your words can be trusted. And God, as we seek to see you and find you and listen to you and be changed by you, in your words, uh, we, we pray that we would come into wisdom that guides us. And Father, we begin even this by acknowledging what we see in Proverbs, that it's the fear of the Lord. It's, it's our awe and reverence for you. That's the beginning of wisdom. And so, Father, as we read these words um, of your son that you even heard from the cross, teach us, God, challenge us, 
shape us. God, where we have calloused hearts, uh, rub them raw once again to feel. God, where we have ignored, help us to see. God, remind us of the truth of who you are and what that means, not just for us, but for all who would have faith and believe. And it's in your name we pray and trust. In the name of Jesus, amen. We left off last week in Luke 23, verse 34, where Jesus prays, Father, forgive them for they know not what they're doing. And I want to pick up in verse 35. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others, let him save himself if he is God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. For there was written above him a sign which read, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. You can do a Google search and you can read about the anguish and the torment and the torture of crucifixion. Uh, research has been done to speak about uh, just the agony and uh, how, how many people who died by crucifixion died uh, by suffocating because they couldn't have the strength to lift themselves up to breathe. And so we know that here Jesus is suffering that he would even form words, that he would even uh, put uh, syllables together shows his desire to communicate something as he expends his last strength. But can you imagine suffering physically? We know that he was bearing the weight of the sins of the world spiritually, but then to add to that the ridicule of people around him. Quite literally, people are adding insult to injury. And the first group we see are the religious leaders. We're told that people are standing around watching. Verse 33, the rulers are even there sneering at him. And listen to what they say. He saved others. Let him save himself if he is God's Messiah, the chosen one. The, the big challenge the religious rulers had with Jesus is that people were saying he was the Messiah, that Jesus was uh, aligning with being the son of man and, and, and having come from God. And before Abraham was, I am. And so he was acknowledging that he was the Messiah. He was the one that came to save. And so they're saying, if you are that, then why don't you save yourself? They were attacking him at the place of identity. They were insulting him at the place of identity. They were, they were doing what we'll see in each of the others, the soldiers and even the criminal who hurls insults. They were saying, you know what, if you are who you say you are, then why don't you meet my expectations of you? The soldiers join in, verse 36. They mock him with their actions. They offered him wine vinegar, which... Uh, Researchers say probably was intentionally to prolong Jesus' suffering if he drank something. But then they ridicule him with their words. Verse 37, if you are the king of the Jews, that's what the sign says. If you are the king, then, then why don't you save yourself? If you are who you say you are, why don't you do something that lives up to our expectations of a king? 
Verse 39. Then one of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. Again, each of these different words, but each of them in the same sentiment. If you are, if you are the anointed one of God, if you are the Messiah, if you are the coming king, then why don't you save yourself? Why don't you do something that would meet our expectations? And I think that if all of us are honest, myself included, there are times that I miss the fullness of who Jesus is because he doesn't meet my expectations of what he should do and what he should say. So here's the rulers, the soldiers, the criminal even joining in. This one criminal who's hurling insults at him, the word that's used for insult, it's translated into English for us by our translators as insult. It's actually a word that can also be translated as blasphemy. Which if you've heard that word before, you know it's a pretty strong word. It means to speak harshly and irreverently of God. The criminal the criminal who is being crucified because of his violent, egregious, evil acts is lobbing insults at Jesus. That's, that's significant. Luke uses the same word again and again to reference these men who hung with Jesus on their own crosses. He uses the word criminal. If you were to look at the Greek word that Luke uses, it's a word that means one who does evil things. The, the, these men were people who had done some of the most evil things that their society could imagine. Uh, Matthew and Mark actually describe them with a different Greek word. It's the same word that Luke would use in the parable of the Good Samaritan. When Jesus challenges that there were these men who robbed and beat and left for dead an innocent man on the road to Jericho, that's the type of men that were hanging on the cross. I don't know what you imagine as the most evil acts today, but that's what these men were guilty of in their day. And one of them, at least, hurls insults at Jesus. And I say one of them at least because in Matthew's account, Matthew chapter 27, verse 44, it tells us that the rebels that were beside him heaped insults on him. It could be that Matthew was just generalizing. Matthew heard the story. Matthew was there watching potentially from a distance and he only heard one person speak, saw another one move his mouth and so he kind of put them all together in the same box. That happens sometimes, doesn't it? But it could be that this man had actually hurled insults previously. Maybe something changed in him, the one who is silent. What we'll see in just a few moments is that there is some sort of transformation. Now, whether it came because of something Jesus said or it had started before that, we do not know. The criminal who's been silent up to this point now speaks to defend Jesus, verses 40 and 41. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly for we are getting what our deeds deserve, but this man has done nothing wrong. Again, maybe he had joined in the insults prior, but something has shifted, and now he comes to Jesus' defense, and it's worth noting here, they're being crucified as well. 
So, 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 so he is at a place where his strength is leaving his body, where, where he is suffering, where, where he has to reach deeply to form every word and every syllable just like Jesus. And he chooses to use his strength to come to the defense of Jesus, rebuking the other criminal. Don't you fear God? Look, look at us. We're hanging here, guilty of egregious crimes, getting what we deserve. We did the crime, we're doing the time, and and yet you have the audacity to, to mock this man. Don't you fear God? And look at him. He has done nothing wrong. What is this criminal who's coming to the defense of Jesus articulating in this moment? What we'll see is it's the beginning of a statement of faith in who Jesus is and what God sent him to do. His next statements are incredible. Verse 42, then he, the same criminal who had rebuked the criminal who had hurled insults, then he, that thief on the cross, that, that evil doer speaks these words. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Do you know that in the whole gospel of Luke, this whole theological biography inspired by God's spirit, telling us the pieces of Jesus' life that Luke knew we needed to know, that he only uses Three times, only records three times where a human being addresses Jesus directly by his name, Jesus. Now, other people will speak of Jesus and talk about that Jesus, but actually calling out to Jesus and addressing him by name, only three times do we see human beings do that. And I say only three times do we see human beings do that because there are actually five occurrences, but two of them are from demons who call out the name of Jesus to him directly. Three of them are by human beings. Luke chapter 17, a group of 10 lepers cry out, Jesus, have pity on me. Luke 18, a blind beggar, Jesus, have mercy on me. Do you remember what the name Jesus means? The Lord saves. The lepers, the blind beggar, They're calling out to Jesus, looking for him to do for them what they could not do for themselves. The lepers couldn't heal themselves. The beggar couldn't make himself see. But they're crying out to Jesus to do for them what they couldn't do for themselves, to to heal them physically. Those expressions by the beggar and by the lepers, they were an expression of faith. I believe that you can do for me what I cannot do for myself. I, I trust in that, Jesus. And what do we see in each instance? Jesus brings the rescue. Jesus heals the lepers. Jesus makes the blind man see. And what do we see in this thief on the cross? Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Remember me. The strength of those two words, remember me, are lost on us. We've grown up in a world where we think of remembering as simply thinking about something that has happened in the past or a person from the past. And so we sit around tables and we talk about, do you remember that vacation we took? Do you remember that spring break we went to Gulf Shores? 
Do you remember that person we saw on the beach? Do you remember that kid from high school? Do you remember that, that, that person in fifth grade who did this or did that? And we're just recalling things from the past. That's not the concept of remembering we see in the people of God in Scripture. Remembering is an expression of deliverance and rescue. Just a few examples. The the Scriptures tell us in the Old Testament that God remembered Noah. Noah builds a big boat in obedience to God, and the rains come down, and guess what? God remembers him. God rescues him. God delivers him. God remembers Abraham. He rescues him. He delivers him. Powerful story in Genesis. A woman named Rachel is unable to conceive children, and we're told that God remembers her, and what happens after that is that she's now able to conceive and bear children. God rescues, God delivers. That's what remembering is. And so here the thief on the cross calls out to Jesus by name, You're the one who saves. Will you remember me? Will you rescue me? Will you deliver me? When? When you come into your kingdom, he acknowledges that Jesus is a king with authority and he has a kingdom. In short, the thief on the cross, this man guilty of egregious, evil, violent, maybe even barbaric acts against his fellow humanity, what we might consider the most vile of people, here on the cross expresses a genuine faith in Jesus. He calls upon the name of Jesus, rescue me. This is where we start to see what's disturbing. Here is a man guilty of some of the most heinous things, He calls out to Jesus, expressing faith, asking for rescue. And yet he has no opportunity to prove that that faith is genuine. No opportunity to make amends for the wrongs that he's committed. He only has his words, his faith. And and what is Jesus' response to him? Jesus answered him, verse 43. Truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. And again, I'm not a great actor, and so I won't even pretend to dramatize it for you, but we're talking about people dying on crosses. And with whatever strength the thief can muster, he says, Jesus probably choking for his words, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus likewise, mustering the strength that he has, looks to the criminal and says, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Truly I tell you, if you grew up reading the King James or an older version of the New International Version, you may recall the expression, verily, I say unto you, or a few places where there's the double, verily, verily, I say unto you. That's the phrase that's used here. What's really interesting is that when Luke pens these words, he writes the Hebrew, amin. The Hebrew word, amin. 
It's a word that we have carried into English and we don't make it a new word. We, we just say, amen. Jesus looks to this criminal and he says, amen. Truly I tell you, you can count on this. You can take this to the bank. Listen closely because this is important. When Jesus uses those words, that's what he's indicating. He says, truly I tell you, listen closely. Today, you will be with me in paradise. Today. Not tomorrow, not some far off distant time, but today. When, when Jesus uses the word today, he means quite literally today. Just another example, if you turn back a few pages to Luke chapter 19, he encounters Zacchaeus as he comes into Jericho. He comes to Zacchaeus' house and he eats with him and he dines with him. And Zacchaeus is changed. He chooses to give half his possessions to the poor and start following Jesus. And look at Jesus' response in Luke 19, 9. Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. Today, not tomorrow, not next year, but today. The reality of the salvation is that day. And then Jesus reminds that this is exactly what he came to do. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And here we have Jesus responding to a man who is guilty of evil, heinous, egregious, vile crimes. And he says, truly I tell you, listen closely. Today. Today. Do you get any more lost than being someone who can rob, perhaps kill, act violently towards another human being. And yet we see Jesus continuing what Luke has highlighted throughout his entire gospel, that Jesus came to seek and save the lost. Today, he says, you will be with me in paradise. Paradise. What's that? If, if, if you grew up uh, in, in, in you know, schools in America, you may have read Dante's Inferno. You, you may have heard some musings from someone. And typically, it goes something like this. Paradise is a separate place where people go before they die. I mean, before they, before they go to heaven. Not before they die, before they go to heaven. Do you know a problem with that? Is that none of that is indicated in Scripture anywhere. Paradise and heaven are used interchangeably. Only three times in the New Testament does the word paradise occur. Here, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 3, and Revelation chapter 2, verse 7. Each time it's used interchangeably with the word heaven. We'll look at the Revelation chapter 2 passage. As John receives this vision while he's incarcerated on the island of Patmos and God reveals to him a picture of what is to come, part of that picture and part of that vision is that Jesus is speaking and he's giving words to churches throughout Asia. At the end of his message to the church in Ephesus, Jesus says this, whoever has ears, let them hear. 
what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, a term to refer to those who are people of faith, who have trusted in Jesus. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. You may recall the tree of life is referenced early in the book of Genesis. In fact, Adam and Eve, when they sin, are cut off from the tree of life because they chose to eat from the tree that they were told not to eat from, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And because of that, cut off from the tree of life. But the picture of the end when God makes all things new is that the tree of life is accessible again to those who are victorious, those who believe, those who have faith in Jesus Christ. If you want a clearer picture of this, thumb to the end of Revelation. I don't have this on the slides for you, Revelation chapter 22. Beautiful picture after John has seen the new heaven and the new earth come descending down. And look how the new heaven is described. It's described as a new Eden. The angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun for the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. The tree of life is in heaven. The tree of life is in the new garden of Eden. The tree of life is in paradise. So go back to Luke chapter 23. Jesus says, truly I tell you, take this to the bank, count on this. Today, you will be with me in paradise. Can you imagine how those words must have felt to a man dying and breathing his last breaths on a cross? A man who had thrown before him all the evil that he had done, all the hurt that he had committed, he was now bearing on the cross And then he hears from Jesus, the one who he's called out to in faith. Guess what? Today, you get to be with me in that place that you have longed for, in paradise, in heaven. Why paradise here? Paradise is a word we get from a Persian word, pardek. In ancient Persia, kings would have these pardeks. They would have these gardens that were expansive. They called them the king's garden. A place where plants of all types were grown, even exotic plants were brought in. Some of the gardens were home to what they would call a menagerie, a zoo of sorts. These beautiful, expansive, elaborate gardens, often walled. And the only people who had access to these gardens were those who were invited by the king. And Jesus in this moment says to him, today, you will be with me in paradise. You get to be with me in the king's garden. You will get to be with me. Do you know how much ink has been spilt over figuring out what heaven will be like? Are the streets of gold literal or figurative? The emerald literal or figurative? the crystal sea, literal or figurative, and lots of people try to figure out all the mysteries of heaven. And do we miss the most important part that the greatest part of heaven is not what it will look like or what will happen between us and other believers? 
but it's the fullness of the God who made us and his son, Jesus Christ. Don't lose sight of that. I read a story several years ago. Um, The author described an old doctor who used to make house calls in the time when doctors would get on their horse and, or their horse and their buggy and they would travel and make house calls to people. And on this one particular occasion, the doctor came to the home of what he knew was a dying man. And so he, he chose to leave his dog, who he brought with him on all of his calls, outside the front door and went in to visit with the dying man. And he's visiting with him and checking him and the man in agony as he's nearing his end voices a question that I think many of us have voiced or heard others voice. Hey, doc, what, what's heaven gonna be like? And just as the dying man voiced that question, the doctor heard his dog outside scratching and pawing at the door. And so the doctor looked at the dying man and he said, do you hear that? That's my dog. He has no idea what it's like in here, but he knows that I'm in here and that's enough for him. And I wonder if in our quest to analyze and figure out every symbol, every thought, do we miss the greatest reality of heaven that what matters most is that our master is in there, that Jesus is in there, that the one whom we have followed and the one whom we have listened to and the one in whom we've sat at the feet of and the one whose words we read and the one who we pray to and the one who we want to serve in the name of, that he is there. Jesus looks to the criminal and he says, today you will be with me in paradise. And I think if we're all honest, uh, that's somewhat disturbing to us. Jesus in this moment assures a dying man whose life up to this moment has been characterized by evil, who will have no chance to prove that his faith is genuine through his actions, who will have no opportunity to make amends for any of his wrongs. And only because of his faith, he welcomes him into the eternal kingdom of God. And that bothers us. Maybe it doesn't bother you now. Maybe it will one day. But often it will bother every follower of Jesus at some point. There's something about the expanse of the scandalous grace of God that disturbs us. It disturbed the religious leaders. Remember, Jesus didn't match their depiction of what they thought the Messiah would be. It disturbed the zealots. He didn't match that picture. What, what What do the religious rulers describe Jesus as in the Gospels? That he was a friend of who? Sinners. We see instance after instance of Jesus not avoiding and running from those in sin, but drawing near to those in sin, those committing vile sins, tax collectors, prostitutes, other sinners. And Jesus draws near. He came to seek and save the lost. 
And yet what happened for the religious leaders often happens for disciples of Jesus where we lose sight of that. Why is it that so often we will look and we will start categorizing what types of evil are worse than other types of evil? And what ends up happening is that we end up creating standards and one consistency in all of our standards is that what we consider most evil are not the things we struggle with, it's what other people struggle with. Are we disturbed by the grace of God? Why is it that we who claim to follow Jesus sometimes are so good at adding our own rules and standards? Why is it that we often want to require more than genuine faith? Why is it that we sometimes want people to be cleaned up and changed before they receive the transforming power of the Holy Spirit through their faith? And why do we do this while we still wrestle with sin in our own lives that for whatever reason we've chosen not to rank as highly as theirs? You know what we can know for certain? is that God is the only one that can truly judge and analyze the motivations and orientations of the human heart towards him. And we can know for certain that when we, like the criminal on the cross, call out to Jesus in faith, that he will save. Did you remember the story from Acts chapter four? Peter and John... Uh, Jesus has ascended to heaven. The early church is thriving. They're growing. And, and Peter and John are coming up to the temple to pray. And as they near the place where they'll ascend to the temple, there's a gate there called Beautiful. And there's a man who is disabled and he is begging and he is hurting. And he's asking for money. And Peter and John say, silver and gold we do not have, but what we do have we give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, get up and walk. We can't give you money, but the name of Jesus can save you. And so word travels throughout the temple complex that there's been a healing and that disturbs the religious leaders. And so they bring Peter and John before them and they begin to chastise them and confront them about it. And, and Peter and John say that it was by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth that this man is healed. And then after quoting an Old Testament passage in Acts 4.12, they dial in. Salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven by where we must be saved. There is no other name. There is no other name than Jesus that saves. We can be sure of that. And so when people even on their deathbed like a criminal, their death cross, cry out to God in genuine faith, he saves. Now I know the challenge for us is, well, what about Jesus' words about a tree bearing good fruit and keeping with righteousness? And what about the vine and the branches and how they have to bear fruit and more fruit and much fruit? It doesn't negate any of those things. 
Certainly, if we are able to live as we respond in faith, the reality of our faith should be that we want to bring everything under the lordship of King Jesus. If he is this good, if he is this savior, if he is this rescuer, then I want all of my life to be lived under his authority. He dictates what I do and what I say and where I go and what I do with my body. But we also have to remember that God has the sovereignty to save those who proclaim his name in faith when they don't have a chance to continue to live for him. These words of Jesus serve as an invitation. They're an invitation to consider the breadth and the scope of God's incredible grace poured out to us to the saving Christ, Jesus. They invite us to consider that even those we label as most evil are not beyond the reach of God's love. They invite us to see that deathbed expressions of faith are valid. This is not to say that we ignore the more normalized example of what we see faith look like in the New Testament. Following Jesus' ascension, what we see most often is that people have faith, and that faith expresses itself in belief. I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. It expresses itself in repentance. This is how I'm living God has a better way. I'm turning from that and I'm living for him. It expresses itself in confessing him as Lord and master over my life. And that faith expresses itself in baptism where I identify with Christ in baptism. I'm buried with him and I'm raised with him. That's what we see normalized in scripture. That's what faith looks like. But we have to also acknowledge that God is sovereign and he can ultimately save whoever responds to him in faith. Either they had a chance to check all those boxes like the criminal on the cross. We promote that example but we trust in his sovereignty. The words of Jesus from the cross are an invitation to remember that the greatest thing about heaven will be the presence of Christ. Do we understand if we are disciples of Jesus that this should fuel our desire to live as disciples who make disciples? A disciple of Jesus is someone who trusts and follows him we, we want to be with him as often as possible. We want to meet with him in his word. We want to meet with him in prayer. We want to meet with him through fasting. We want to meet with him through serving other people. We want to meet with him through being generous. We practice spiritual disciplines to, to meet with Jesus, to, to be with him. It's practice for eternity where the most exceptional thing will be being with him. And yet what happens sometimes is that some who are followers of Jesus and perhaps even some in this room, your faith is only for one day a week. And perhaps you look forward to heaven for the absence of war and grief and all those things and you miss the greatest reality of heaven. That's to be with the one who made you and formed you and loves you. And finally, these words are an invitation to hope. We need to see Jesus' words to the criminal as an invitation to hope. The possibility of new life, the possibility of rescue, the possibility of life in the king's garden exists for all of us no matter how evil or vile our sin has been. If we come to Jesus and in faith proclaim him as savior, he will make us new. No matter what you've done, you don't have to clean yourself up first. As you respond to him in faith, he will give you the power to bring every part of your life under his authority and kingship. After you respond to him in faith, he begins his new work in you. He'll help you come to see what it looks like to find your identity in him. 
to completely submit your speech, your actions, your resources, your thoughts, your appetites, your sexual desires, and every other part of your life to him and under his authority. And as we respond in faith, he'll help us work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Do you know why they give the disclaimer at the beginning of those articles and videos that might have disturbing images? Because those images should stir us deeply. We ought to be continually stirred deeply by the magnificent, scandalous, expansive grace of God. I pray that you, like me, have been disturbed. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the dying witness of Jesus from the cross and the dying faith of a criminal. God, may we live with the same honesty and integrity to cry out to you in faith and proclaim you our Savior and to live for you in this world under your authority as long as you grant us life and to look forward to being with you forevermore when we come into your kingdom. God, wreck us with the truth of your word. It's in your name we pray.